Hello and welcome back to the DocSF podcast series. My name is Dan Kendall, host of the Digital Health Today podcast, and this DocSF series of podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Health Podcast Network. This is the sixth episode of our series from the 2018 event. Very soon we'll be attending the 2019 event on January 5th and 6th. I know I'm looking forward to it. I hope I'll see you there. If you can't be there, we'll miss you, but at least you'll be able to get some of the benefit from the content that's delivered through our next season of podcasts. We're already beginning to plan the sessions and speakers we'll bring to you, so while you'll miss out of some of the benefits of attending live, you'll at least be able to get some of the content. Joining me again on this program is the conference founder and chair, Dr. Stefano Bini. Stefano, we've made it to the last episode in the first season. How are you feeling about the material we've created so far? This has been absolutely outstanding. We've got great response about having this content available to people in a form of a podcast. And I think uh, doing this with your help, be able to uh, reach out to our audience with this content is terrific. That's really good to hear. I, I really feel good about what we've done here, but I'm sad to see it end for now. I'm really glad that you're happy about it. I've definitely enjoyed producing these podcasts with you, and it also gave me the opportunity to really refresh my memory of the sessions I attended almost a year ago. Now we have one more episode to go, and it's called The Fireside Chat. What can you tell us about this one? Well, you know, at DocSF, uh, we've got a segment we call The Fireside Chat. And in this segment, we preview one of the following year's topics. Um, and in this case, we chose robotics, which will be the, a big focus for 2019. So how do we address that? Well, we have Jamie Calluet, who is a former chairman of the California Orthopedic Association and works at the Ho Clinic, which is one of the most uh, probably forward-thinking clinics, uh, orthopedic clinics in, uh, in America. And he's going to be introducing four visionary leaders in four vastly different spaces. And he'll introduce the audience to some of these new robotic technologies that have all deployed. So first we hear from Manish Katari. He's president at SRI, the Stanford Research Institute Venture Segment, and he has launched a number of successful companies. And he talks about the, the work he's been doing with exoskeletons and the technology behind the product that he has since launched uh, called Superflex. Now, he is followed by Dr. Mohan Nair from Cambia Health, and he speaks about how to drive new technology and business models in the context of shifting markets. And from where he sits as a CIO of a very large healthcare system, it's really a great talk. Then he's followed in turn by uh, David Jakovsky, and he's a chairman and CEO of the Core Institute. And he talks at length about uh, indications for and the use of robotics in orthopedics, but he also provides impressive insights in how to uh, adopt technology within a small but highly effective healthcare group. And after him, we've got uh, Joe Lynch. Uh, he talks about the use of robots in the pharmacy to minimize the cost of drug spending, improve medication practices, and standardizing care and avoid uh, errors. Uh, in this case, we see robots and AI uh, working together to optimize processes. Um, so let's listen to, to those conversations between these amazing leaders and, and their perspectives on the use of robotics in, in orthopedics and healthcare in general. Well, thank you, Stefano. And I, I know that uh, we have an amazing, uh, talented group in front of us today, and each of them are going to, to take some time to, uh, to walk through their area of expertise. So why don't we go ahead and, and get started? I'm Manish. Yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Great. Perfect. I'm from SRI. SRI is a large nonprofit, roughly $500 million in revenue. We do mainly research for the government. As a result of that, we generate a lot of IP. My team focuses on converting the IP into actual products through startups. Uh, I'm sure everybody here is at least using one of our uh, inventions. If you've got an iPhone, Siri, that came from my team. Uh, if you've got a Samsung S8, the bio, Iris Biometric, that's another one of our startups. So we work across a large number of areas. Uh, Intuitive Surgical, back in the day, came from us. Uh, we have another surgical robotics company that we've worked on with some of the members who are here in the audience today. Um, so a broad range. Today I'm going to talk about... Is that the clicker? Yep, that's the clicker. Okay. That makes it easy. Okay. I'll be talking about one of the things we're working in, which is exoskeletons. And this is a company that I helped found, and I'm on the board of, called Superflex. I'll talk about it. I think when we think of exoskeletons, we think of heavy, hard objects that we put on our body that, that help us, for a brief period of time, do miraculous things. 
That's a wonderful thing. But when I think about my grandfather, when I see my grandfather, the first thing he does is he chucks his walker very ungracefully, by the way, behind the sofa so that I don't know he needs a walker. <laughs> it's For me to get him to put an exoskeleton on is not going to happen. So, so what we need is something that actually restores dignity and hope and belief to people. And that was the, the starting point of our creation of, of Superflex. And I'll go over that. I mean, really, you're asking yourself, do you want to be Iron Man? Which is fabulous for a few minutes. I'd love it. But in day-to-day -day life, I'm actually pretty happy being Spider-Man. Soft, flexible, easy to use. So this project started from a DARPA program. We received a large DARPA program to take a soldier wearing a 100-pound backpack, walk for six hours in trains such as the ones shown there, and reduce metabolic load by 20%. So we did not start out to create a soft system. We started out to reduce metabolic load. And what we realized was over six hours, we could not do that with an exoskeleton. We had to make it conform. We had to allow the natural flexibility of the body to take place. So we created here we go, uh, a, a system called Superflex that was focused on being highly flexible, very precise. Now, this seems simple, but this involves a lot of marvels of modern sensing. We did a jujitsu move. Instead of doing a lot of force, can we time the force so that, for example, exactly at the millisecond of toe-off, we can give you a little spring in your foot? That requires exquisite sensing, very precise control and algorithmic uh, processing on-site, a motor that's small enough to do it, the transfer of load at the perfect time, and finally, to do it in a way that doesn't rip your, rip your muscles, cause sores, cause other things. So a lot of innovation has to happen. Lastly, it has to be quiet. And that's one of the things people forget about in, in all of these things. You can't make a system that's loud. Nobody's going to wear it. Uh, it, it makes for a lot of challenges. So I will move on and say, go quickly through here. So we, we created this system that focuses on a lot of different component technologies from quiet transmission, ultra-low micromotors, transmission of loads, et cetera, et cetera. And we ended up with a system called Superflex. Superflex is like a leotard. But unlike a diagnostic device that helps you sense what your body is doing, this actually helps you move. This is a robot. This is an exoskeleton. It will help you sit, it will help you stand, which is a very hard problem because you're using your flexors, your glutes, your back all simultaneously, and you use them with exquisite precision. It helps, but you wear it under your clothes. People won't know that you have it on if they don't want you to know that they have it on. If you do, we've designed it. There's people like a number of fashion designers who have helped us do this. So it's been designed so that if you do want to wear it, you can. But if you don't, you don't have to. The batteries have to get small enough. You've got to imagine, if we have to have a motor that is very small, that's how we do it. So I will end just by saying the goal of Superflex, and this product is going to go out into beta launch uh, to, the pub, to a small group of uh, senior citizen health units uh, in, in the second half, last quarter of this year. So it's, this is not a hypothetical product. This is a product that's going in the market. And I'll end by saying that this is our hope. We started with something very engineering-wise. We're making it very, very fashion-centric. Uh, and finally, being a nonprofit SRI, we're also using the same technology base to work with a, a non-muscular dystrophy foundation to focus these same activities for a muscular dystrophy uh, group. This is not a for-profit part of our mission. This is a non-profit part. So the same technology is being enabled there. So having to talk more about it in the course of this session. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay, Mohan. Hi. Uh, my, my role at Cambia Health uh, is to be the chief innovation officer for the company, and most of the people in the room probably don't understand what that means, and, but it took me a while to figure it out as well. Uh, in, in eight years in that role, uh, I had to learn about how innovation uh, has to be part of the culture of an organization, not necessarily part of the activities. So it, it was driven into the value system of the organization, just a byline, the you know can be a health for what it owns and operates. It owns and operates about 35 different companies, five of which were Blue Cross Blue Shield, are Blue Cross Blue Shield entities. So we have an insurance base of about 100 years of knowledge and data, and then transferred that and transformed it over the last 10 years, 14 years actually, uh, to be a company that's focused on health solutions and the experience of a consumer 
that traverses the healthcare practice. Uh, that challenge, I thought, would take five years. I joined the company in 2004, and then I'd write a book and hang out here more often. But um, it's taken 14 years. It hasn't been completed yet, so I'm still in the job. Uh, the pleasure of working with insurance is not something people talk about in a fireside chat. But <laughs> it, is, it is one of the things I had to do to get into the inside of the belly of the giant and to understand the flow of money and where money goes because behavior follows. The biggest issue that drove that transformation was the fact that the company was very committed at that time and still is to transform based on a cause, and the cause being move the lens of the healthcare system from the institutional uh, conversations and dialogue to a consumer conversation and dialogue to titrate that dialogue into back into the institution so that they can function with a beat that's very different than what we still enjoy today. Uh, my role was to drive new technologies and new business models in the marketplace. What I've learned through that process is that technology by itself, and you know this, and we know it, but we practice it every day, technology by itself without business model shifts and reimbursement shifts, I don't mean reimbursement from an insurance perspective, I mean from both emotional and spiritual as well as the uh, uh, financial reimbursement has to transform so that the system can work. So what are examples, since I have to be less strategic and more practical given the instructions I've been given by uh, Beanie over there. Um, let me give you some examples. When you look at how people make choices in medical decisions, they have very little data. Consumers have very little data. They work off hunches. They work off advice from you as physicians, and they then follow those advice as per the instructions they're given. They're not participatory most of the time, and they don't have choices in terms of cost, efficacy, as well as whether the hospital kills people on a regular basis. Uh, and they need to have that data so that they can make a concerted decision, and then their health begins there. When you look at that transparency project has been a 14-year project. We launched a company 14 years ago that is still underway and now touches 70 million Americans privately for them to make choices before they do surgeries or procedures. If you were to consider the military and you look at how they function, they work really well when they're young and then they suffer when they get older. They are making choices in nutrition, which is called the sweat tent. I was former military. What you do is you just starve yourself before battle so that you can get the weight count and you can make the training and then you get right in there. A lot of knee injuries happen long before they even enter the battlefield and they're sent back. We got focused on that. I worked with the, the federal government on how to improve their sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And it was not the uh, ultra-marathon style that we've seen here today, even though I really totally admire the individual who can do that. I wish I had that in my resume. Uh, but what I have in my resume is the work that we did with the military for the last five years, watching how they function. And what we've learned is they don't eat well, they don't sleep well, and they don't exercise well. And we've tried to transform that into using a company that would do that on a regular basis, using the skills that we all have in health management, but also in technology management, which then touches ubiquitous soldiers, very different parts of the country to be effective. Another example is primarily on drugs. We all love to take them, but we hate to pay for them. They're expensive in many cases, they're challenging, and the efficacy is unknown to the consumer. It is known to the physician, and the physician is comfortably engaged with what they routinely use because of their experience, but the experience isn't shared. And so we created a company called MedSavvy that I incubated with the help of great pharmacists. We did it for eight months. We produced a product and a company called uh, MedSavvy, which is the, effic the efficacy view of drugs, not based on prices, but based on efficacy and research that can be allowed in the hands of a physician as well as in the hands of the consumer at the same time. So that a dialogue can occur in terms of choice management, which is clearly an area where consumers are wanting to participate. That has just been launched and will be uh, in the hands of you, you all as well. Finally, it's in the area of um, you know, the basics. We speak a lot about AI, and I'm an AI individual, but I've recovered. Um, I did it in the 80s, and uh, now finally I have a career. But, uh, but, but what we have in AI is a great technology and an incredibly powerful transformative agent 
But, you know, right now, everybody's using that word in everything, including the pina colada they're drinking, right? It's just everywhere. The noise element of AI is just frightening, and everyone's got AI in it. So I think the discerning mind has to take over in terms of where can it really be applied. And I see a lot of good examples of it in the room. I would like to say that there is a co-relationship between AI and a dystopic view of the world and also a utopic view of the world. Some people believe that utopia is where it's going to be. Some people see it as dystopic. You can correlate that to people who believe in the Kardashians or do not. But, um, so you can do that AI analysis if you'd like. But I can say to you that it is a utopic view, in my opinion, but managed well. And examples of it. Case managers who are currently in the insurance business are talking to your patients on a regular basis, trying to help them through very severe cases. That learning is embedded within an insurance company, but never touched by you and never worked with you. We are using AI machines right now, machine learning, that case managers train and then after a while deploy to help them do a better case management with a shorter period of time for a larger population. That is working really well right now. The other example is in terms of fraud, abuse, and waste. We are finding critical uh, data analysis capability where AI machines can pick through and isolate fraud, abuse situations much earlier in the cycle than it did before because of the learning machine capability that we've got. And we have about 30 uh, AI executives, and we have a chief AI officer within our company, and we have 35 companies that are taking advantage of that particular example. The bigger challenge now is how do we integrate this into a common experience with a human-centered view of the world? These discrete solutions only help discrete individuals. We've got to try and get a system in place that allows, or many systems, that allow an experience to be something that consumers enjoy and participate in on a regular basis. So that's where we're at. Thank you. A lot to chew on. David, go ahead. Thanks. So, my name is Dave Jakovsky. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training. I um, kind of wear two hats, though. I am also the chairman of a company called Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company that focuses on population health and wearable devices and focal risk in orthopedics. So, robotics, which is what I was asked to speak about today, kind of can be viewed through both of those lenses. I was asked, though, really to, to give the perspective from an orthopedic uh, surgeon's point of view um, about the history of robotics and where we are today. And yesterday, it was pretty clear in talking to some folks that there's sort of a wide um, variation in the amount of knowledge and experience people have in robotics. But I wanted to start with this quote just based on the fact that this is a, a meeting largely centered on innovation. It's actually a quote that I tell my kids all the time, a tiger doesn't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. And we're going to all leave here. Um, as we do for many of these innovation meetings with a rah-rah attitude about all these new technologies. But much like what we're seeing with robotics, healthcare is a very different animal than almost any other industry for a whole host of reasons that, that I'm going to touch on. And so robotics is, is a technology in healthcare. And for many of those same reasons, the adoption curve for technologies in healthcare can take a long time. There are tons of naysayers in, in healthcare. And healthcare, unlike a traditional startup, you can come with a startup technology, but but it's a very ingrained culture. It's been around for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands maybe of years. And physicians have practice patterns and thought processes and histories that it's not just something they're going to pick up a new product and start to use. It's very different than starting a technology that nobody's ever seen before, the adoption curve that you would normally see. The history drives a much slower adoption curve. So we need to continue to tell the naysayers, whether it's the Yale uh, management professor who told Fred Smith that his 24-hour delivery service was impractical and gave him a fairly poor grade on it, or whether it's physicians out in practice that say that these technologies are never going to become important. But all industries go through the same five phases. They start out as a craft or an art. They go through a phase called rules plus instruments, standardized procedures, then automation, and they, then computer integration. And healthcare is in about stage three right now. They always follow the same um, the same process. And it's interesting because if you get admitted to a hospital today, you have a 1 in 7,000 chance of dying from a preventable medical error due to lack of IT infrastructure, redundancy, and standardization. If that was your risk of flying on an airplane, you would never do it. And so technologies have 
been used in every other industry. Banking errors don't really occur anymore because you don't have a bank book that somebody fills out. But you actually have a higher chance of dying from a truly preventable medical error than you would if you were in the military and were deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. It's crazy. No other industry. And so we have a lot of issues to solve in the long term that in some part robotics is trying to solve. And so this is really um, to generate some discussion because we can't do a two-day robotic seminar in another six minutes. But the issues that robotics is looking to solve on the physician and patient side, we know that putting in a total knee or a total hip or a pedicle screw in the spine in the right position has to be a good thing. Outliers are bad. And so robotics, we know, can improve implant positioning. Robotics should be able to make surgery less invasive because in theory you can do things with smaller instruments without your hands needing to be in there. It may help us shift patients to leave the hospital or be able to have surgery done as an outpatient because it's less invasive. There are physician and hospital issues that it tries to solve. We need to increase the number of procedures we're doing in the same amount of time in order to maintain our income, but we also need to do it because the demographics of orthopedics are such that the rate of surgical intervention required from the baby boomers and the current demographics is growing faster than a number of orthopedic surgeons. We need to increase the ability of mid-level providers like nurse practitioners and physician's assistants to function at the highest legal level of their licensure. They should be doing things that generate as much value as possible. And we need to increase the margins in the episode of care because of bundled payments and population health initiatives. There's also issues for the device industry, which spill over to the physician, the hospital, and the patient. There's massive price pressures that hopefully robotics will solve. There's market share issues that they all hope that they will be able to solve with robotics. But it's also a very disruptive distribution model because if you use robotics, you should have a predictable outcome and you should be able to have just-in-time inventory, for example, for patients. The other thing that many people don't recognize is that to launch a new type of knee replacement probably costs about $25 million, maybe less, for a big company, $10, $12 million, to get the implant done and approved, and about up to half a billion dollars to develop the worldwide instrument sets that you need for surgeons to be able to do the procedure that get completely eliminated with the use of a robot. So instead of a $500 million implant, it's a $20 million implant. And so the ability to generate new implants will change dramatically. Now there's a whole host of companies working on surgical robotic technologies. This isn't even a complete list. And you can kind of think about surgical robots in a few different categories. Is it hard tissue or soft tissue? The da Vinci robot is a soft tissue robot. I would argue it's not really a robot at all. Soft tissue moves. Therefore, you can't have a preoperative plan and know that the anatomy will be identical in the operating room. On a bone, on a hard tissue, you can. So there's a big difference. Does it require preoperative imaging like a CT scan in three dimensions or, or not? Is the planning done preoperatively and then the robot will exactly match the plan, which you can do with heart tissue? Or is the planning done intraoperatively? And is the robot active, meaning the surgeon doesn't need to do certain things that they used to need to do at all because the robot will do it for them? Is it semi-active or is it passive? So the definition of a robot is probably the most confusing thing in robotics today. It's very similar to AI, right? But if you use a common definition, a machine capable of carrying out complex actions automatically, you'll see that many of the popular robots aren't robots at all. They're mechanical jigs, for example. They're burrs that if you start to go outside the field, the burr will retract, for example. Um, some are more active. Some require 3D imaging. Um, in the arthroplasty space, excluding spine, just in the interest of time, the Mako robot has shown that there can be an adoption curve. They're probably right now the market leader for arthroplasty. And um, if you look at what we're starting to see now with robotics from 2007 to 2016, you can see that we're starting to hit a real adoption curve. Now, whether or not this has an impact on 10-year survivorship of implants, remains unknown, but there's now over 300 MAKO systems out there. And there are dozens, if not over 100 publications now related to robotics. And we're not gonna go through them, obviously, but it does reduce blood loss and it does reduce trays and it probably reduces infection. It definitely increases the accuracy of where you put the implant. But there are still some barriers and concerns. Number one, which this may surprise a lot of people, when it comes to knee replacement, the best orthopedic surgeon in the world doesn't know exactly the right place to put the implant. 
in three dimensions, it's still unclear how to put in some of these implants. And so, although the robot can hit a target, you can give the best rifle and the best scope, and you can hit the target every single time, if the target's not the right target, the survivorship may not change. And so that will call into question the credibility of robotics. Cost is a problem. There's a big capital cost. Depending upon disposables for a case, there may be an increase in the per case cost, and there's a learning curve. And you also have to overcome surgeon ego. So many surgeons don't like to think that perhaps a technology will replace them one day. Ultimately, as we look to the future, there will be companies, I believe, that go from this red ocean to this blue ocean strategy as it relates to robotics. And so from a high level, what a possible future looks like, I believe, will be high volume joint replacement or spine facilities that are, quote, focus factories. And that's been proven high volume facilities tend to have better outcome. There'll be just-in-time inventory for particular patients based on preoperative planning. Surgery will be less invasive, which will help shift things to the outpatient, but reimbursement in the outpatient space is actually less than the inpatient space. So an increased cost from robotics doesn't make a whole lot of financial sense in the outpatient space, although it's often touted as a good solution for that. Robots certainly will be fully automated, Actually, that technology is probably available, although not FDA-approved today. And we need to figure out how to correlate outcomes with preoperative and intraoperative plans and procedures. So if you do total knees a certain way with a robot, how do those patients do compared to a different way it's done by a different surgeon? There will be robots, I believe, all over the place in surgery, and I do believe that in some way they will become the standard of care. The other thing that is going to happen is robots will be connected. We will be able to use the data from robots to learn, whether it's true AI or not, whether it's true machine learning, but certainly surgeons can use that data to learn from each other. When you look at the big companies, Google is working with J&J, for example, on this Verb program. The, the really future-looking companies are looking at connectivity. Every robot's connected to the internet, just like driverless cars. Every robot communicates with each other. The machines are learning based on their past experience. They're learning anatomy as they go. They're working on advanced robotic technology, and part of that is advanced visualization and advanced end effectors. Can you have flexible end effectors that can bend in three dimensions so they can turn corners and not even need to see inside the patient, for example? Can you do this stuff through our arthroscopic tiny incision portals instead of regular surgery? But when you start to look at that, this is just to close, there are some real barriers and concerns in healthcare that don't necessarily exist in other industries. Number one, our data is terrible. I know that robotics decreases infection rate, but claims data doesn't even have a definition of infection in it. So I, have, I work at two different hospitals where my transfusion rate is different and my infection rate is different just based on how the doctors document in the medical chart. So lots of data problems. There's all kinds of privacy, HIPAA, regulatory concerns about this kind of interconnectivity. And there are real security concerns. People are hacking cars now. Are they going to be able to hack surgical robots that are connected to the internet? The two biggest issues, though, are cultural. One is that, as I mentioned, healthcare is heavily ingrained in surgeons' minds, and change is not going to be easy. And perhaps most important, which Tom touched on this morning, patients are real people. So any study we do, any experimentation we do, any new trial that we do is going to involve somebody's mother or father. And that creates a very different adoption curve than it might when we're not talking about patients that we care for. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> Joe. Great. Thanks so much. Um, Joe Lynch with OmniCell. OmniCell is in about 40% of the hospitals around the United States, and we are involved in medication management, both in the hospitals and across the entire continuum of care. So it's really a privilege to work with you and your different organizations to help improve healthcare, and a real pleasure to be here. I'm going to share a little bit, and it's good to follow David, about a robot that we've just recently announced that works in a different part of the, uh, the hospital. We do have automation within the OR, but today I'll be speaking about our new XR2 robot, which deals with medication management in the Health System Central Distribution Center or down in the Central Pharmacy. Just announced it's in operation with a customer today, 
uh, moving quickly to a second and general availability later this year. And uh, we have a whole range of different solutions that uh, we work hard to try to overcome the challenges that have already been identified. So machines speaking to one another, uh, robotics, predictive intelligence, all to uh, help technology connect well with the professional clinicians and practitioners. And the problems we're trying to address with this new solution focus on the three highlighted items here. So first, on the left, the ridiculous increase of drug spending over the last number of years. Everyone's familiar with this. Uh, medication practices and processes have room to grow in terms of standardization, efficiency. One way that our customers are interested in uh, improving here is by having more pharmacists on the care team assisting at the time when uh, decisions are made both within the hospital and outside of uh, the, uh, you know, wherever uh, the, the patient may be. Second, and this is also brought up, already been brought up today, preventable errors. 7,000 preventable errors every year, uh, which uh, is, is uh, unbelievable. 72% of post-discharge events are related to preventable error. 20% of ADEs have some issue with inventory, or in this case, medication availability. Uh, so a large problem here. And then finally on the right, really has come to the forefront this past year. Uh, the number one cause of death among Americans under 50 is the opioid overdose. As you may all know, one out of every 10 practitioners over the course of their career are going to have a challenge. There's uh, and nearly half a million ER visits every year uh, coming in. And so this is a, an area that the pharmacy, that the health system is aggressively needing to manage. And the manual processes that, have, uh, that we've had thus far are not sufficient. And so hence the need for automation. What I'm going uh, to now do is explain how we've learned a lot OmniCell working with other and observing other leaders within automation, specifically outside of our area. If you strip away the clinical aspect of what we're doing, we look to Amazon.com. They're doing a lot of things similar to what we need to do in terms of delivering an item to an individual at exactly the right time, getting quicker and quicker. So there's some benefit to take a look at what they're doing of how we've been improving automation. And so we're going to draw some comparisons. Let's first look at what Amazon was doing six years ago. It's, it's surprising how it actually mirrors how our automation and medication management was similar back then. And the, the question that we looked at was a good question, but perhaps not the best question. How do we automate manual processes? Let me quickly show this video that shows how Amazon was approaching it. This is where our receivers are receiving product, adding to Amazon's selection. They scan all of these items into these storage bins using radio frequency technology, activates it live on our website, and it's available to customers. Uh, we've got extension cords, a Makita drill, backpacks, and vitamins. You've got extension cords. Can I pick these up? Uh, you can't just Put them back do me in a favor. Place. I will mark this so we know exactly where that extension cord all needs right. to go back. The USB extension cord right below it, you have this. Crystal candle holders. That's right. It doesn't right. make sense that these would be together, but but this makes the most sense for Amazon. It does. Why? We optimize our storage space. So Okay, so you can see what they were doing. I mean, it's somewhat comparable to when I go to Home Depot and I have my list of things that I need to get. You can see the improvements that they've made. They had automation working in the background, but there's still a lot of manual processes. Someone's walking around following this list. The items are tagged. The technology is working. Um, and so while there's improvement and more accuracy, lots of room for improvement for efficiency. And early generations of medication robots had similar opportunities and challenges with barcode scanning and having a, a, a large number of items in the formulary in such robots. There are improvements in safety made. However, the optimizing storage, uh, as they mentioned in the Amazon video, was similar to what the focus had to be here. And where the focus wasn't, where there's lots of room for, for improvement, is how can we optimize the caregiver's experience? How can we optimize the patient's experience? How can we drive greater efficiency given those costs, 39% increases that we talked about earlier? Amazon saw this opportunity. They've made some improvements. Let's can take a look. And some of it was by reframing the situation. How do we elevate the provider-patient experience? In their case, the 
the consumer experience. All of us with our Prime uh, memberships with Amazon have become quite accustomed to what they're able to deliver now. Let's see some of the changes that they made. The workers, the There's audio on this one as well. At this fulfillment center in Tracy, California, more than 3,000 of them cruise the warehouse floor, helping employees fill millions of orders. The little orange uh, robot goes out and picks the right pot of inventory and brings it back just at the right time for the person to pick the item out to go in that customer shipment. Before the Kiva robots, the workers used to walk the warehouse aisles picking up the items. But now they stay on these platforms and the robots bring the shelves and the items directly. Okay, so uh, you can see the improvements that were made here. Rather than having to have an army of staff to walk these shelves, gather all of these items, they were able to advance the technology, approach the problem differently, and bring the, bring the items at exactly the right time to the individual to get the job done. It's interesting that in the case of medication management within the central distribution center or within the central pharmacy, we've actually taken a very similar approach and you'll see a quick snippet of the video here where we have a robot that's filling three patients' medications, and the medications that are needed for these specific patients are brought forward at exactly the right time. The robot, robot's able to capture those specific items. We've been able to overcome some of the storage technology challenges that we had earlier where any medication can go in any of the units because of uh, working with manufacturers, using manufacturer barcodes, we can uh, have 200 to 300% greater capacity in this robot. We can satisfy 90% of all of the non-IV medication doses with much greater accuracy and incredible efficiency so that the pharmacist can now be a part of the care team uh, involved in the patient's care. And so this is our new XR2 system that captures that kind of technology. And again, I, I just say there's a lot of benefit from both this conversation today, learning from one another, and in our case, looking at folks outside of healthcare and what they're doing in terms of technology innovation. Thanks. Great. So uh, thank you. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose just sort of one or two questions, but then what I'd really like to do is, is open this up also to the audience, if that's okay, Stefano. Um, so, um, you know, each of these areas that we've touched on across here are areas where we are starting to develop different types of technologies to, I would say, augment human performance, uh, whether it's in the operating room, whether it's, it's in, in the hospital as the pharmacist, whether it's uh, for your father who is uh, moving from sit to stand out of a chair, we're using all of these. What do you think is the number one area, and again, this is keying off of what we were asked to do, what is the number one area where you think practicality is going to come in and you're going to have your first success, and how will you measure that success for this this technology that you're looking at, in, let's start with the uh, exoskeleton. With the with the exoskeleton, so the, thank you. I don't spill it. This uh, with with the exoskeleton, it will largely be upon uh, consumer adoption. Uh, it's all of us are quite particular about the clothes we wear and how we wear and how they look. So it's a, a, not a trivial challenge to build something that can be used by a variety of consumers while being an engineering solution. It's 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 quite challenging, and so. A lot of our time has been focused on truly understanding what the requirements are, and I gave noise as one, sound as one example, and incorporating that back. How do you go to the bathroom when you have one of these things on? That's a non-trivial problem. Uh, you really have to think through not just the engineering, the biomechanics, but also the practicalities. And then you also have to start thinking through how do I sub-segment? Do I create something only for lower back? It has some advantages and some disadvantages. Do I create something for rehab? So those are all part of the challenges were picking what your first target was. Uh, do I go for an industrial application first and not, an, uh, not a consumer application? So these are the big challenges that we're faced with. And ultimately, the success is derived a lot with engagement with the community and we've engaged with all of these communities and then picking your targets based on where you think that sweet spot of, of value is maximized for a large enough segment of the population to, to make it worthwhile. And I think that's really how we've focused on it. I would say the one other aspect is 
you cannot build something today purely in anticipation of what technology will be available 48 months from now. That may or may not get you to where you need. You have to work with the tools you have and design it, knowing that AI will improve, some sensing will improve, and you'll take advantage of that. But you can't go too far out on a limb with that. And I've seen a large number of companies that, that, that do do that. So it sounds like you're... It sounds like your first target then is the consumer market. Is that correct? Is the elderly, yes, the consumer market. Because that solution encompasses all the other subsets. So let's try and build the build. It's, it's a hard call, uh, but build that one first, and then we can go after rehab or industrial or sports. I mean, can we help you improve your golf stroke? Of course we can. And uh, we're going to. Uh, but But we may not do that with our very first product. So this takes... This takes doping to a whole new level when it comes to athletics. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, in my case, uh, I'll take one example that we tried to create. We, for 18 months, we were focused on drug efficacy and choice management. It's how do consumers engage in choices. Usually they get a direction from a physician on a choice of medication. Then they go through a dialogue of does it work, does it not work, and then they go through the pharmacy who they trust more, and the pharmacist talks to them about all that side effects and et cetera, and that dialogue goes through in a three-way cycle. Um, we spend in the insurance part of the business a billion dollars on drug payments a year. Uh, when you look at the choices people make and the physicians make, most of them you don't want to infect the choice between a physician and a patient. That's not where you want to play at all. However, choices that patients make are slightly different. They'd like to make choices based on costs. They'd like to make choices based on the drug efficacy. And usually, family members in a family, the uh, one spouse is focused on the children. So we looked at that market, and we said, how many kids are suffering today from certain illnesses that we can then focus on and we can look at the family unit and look at the illnesses of that family unit. And what we found with using data is that certain families are extensively suffering in cost. When they get hit, they get hit hard. And usually there are one or two kids get into trouble at the same time. So the cost of the deductibles all the way to the choices they make are coloring their choices of medications as well. So we focus on uh, the one person in the uh, family who's focused on the kids that's doing analytic work around, does this drug work for my child, does it not? And we try to convince that person that there are more than one choice and that they, could, they, could, they have the right to make it. And they have a right to dialogue with their physician about it, which usually is kind of a hesitant process. So we have a button that says, call your physician or call your pharmacy. And when they call their pharmacist, the pharmacist says, would you like me to negotiate with the doctor? Obviously, you're having some problems. But we have a longstanding relationship with the doctors, and we actually facilitate that in Amazon fashion. So it's really fast. The next step is really to deliver the drug to them as quickly as possible, and that's part of this product design. Um, how do we know it's going to succeed? A billion dollars worth of drugs are sold or bought by this firm that we, are part, we own partial control over. We have 35 other companies we work with. But if you can reduce that cost by 30% and you run the model and you say, people who choose this drug versus that drug, you can save 30%. And that's literally the uh, upper bound solution space for the entire industry, which is to look at A-graded drugs versus C-graded drugs when C-graded drugs are being utilized more than A-graded drugs, and those A-graded drugs are actually less expensive for the consumer. And we have a lot of that in our industry. So what we do is we patent the grading of these drugs using very tight processes with pharmacists who know the method and can defend it fully. So that's how we measure our success. Great. David? Yeah. So I, I personally don't have a robot to sell per se, but I, I think, th you know, robots are already out in the market, right? So I, the real question is how are we going to, what's, what's the first place where we prove value right. for the robot? And in sort of an ironic way, it's, it's not so much that we're going to prove value for the robot. I think the, the primary value of the robot will be in the ability for us to actually know in a cohort of patients where we put an implant in. 
And through studies using robots, we'll be able to figure out what the best way to put an implant in is. Then we can take the robot and have the robot put all the implants in in the best way. Because today, even with the jigs that we have, there are, people probably don't want to hear it, but when you look at x-rays, 7, 10 degrees of outliers from ideal in, in both directions, for especially for lower volume surgeons. And so to, to do a study where you're trying to figure out how patients do, how to improve outcomes based on a surgery where physicians are eyeballing where they're putting an implant in without using a computer or three-dimensional imaging, you end up really with garbage in and, and garbage out. And that's why we really don't know what the right target is. So I think it will be an iterative process of using robotics to prove how to do things better and then using the robots to hit those targets. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, I'd say there are some hard metrics, soft metrics. Um, and, you know, for a long time, health systems weren't investing in the business supply chain processes and expertise like corporations have for decades. And that's begun to change. So I think, you know, inventory turns at optimal levels of, you know, 16 times, uh, very low expiry clinicians uh, working at the top of their licensure, 100% on, on patient care teams. I think those are some of the hard metrics. But ultimately, I think uh, patients, real, with that clinician working at the top of their licensure, whether it's a pharmacist, a nurse, a physician, I think that's going to show up with the patient. I think the patient's going to see the difference. And so whether it's their HCAP score, whether it's that we've removed the medication errors associated with it, inventory issues, and they're benefiting, I mean, ultimately, I think that's what we're striving for. So ultimately, we want to see fewer deaths. Yeah. I mean, right. at the end of the line. Yeah. Right. So uh, let me open it up to the audience. Uh, we've got several, several questions I can see brewing out there. This question is for David. Uh, when do you think robotics is going to affect our malpractice insurance? For one, you talked about the ego. Uh, liability issue become maybe a higher than ego. And I'm just wondering, uh, would it reduce your malpractice insurance and uh, when? Yeah, we've actually talked to our malpractice carrier about that. And um, so I think for arthroplasty surgeons uh, who are routinely using robotics today, depending upon who your carrier is, there may be an opportunity for you to reduce your malpractice costs now. Um, they've been fairly amenable to that. And I think now there is some reasonably good literature um, about accuracy and things like instability. Um, but from a sort of standard of care perspective, I think um, it, it, will, it will take a little bit of time, largely because many orthopedic surgeons, if not the majority of them, are still general orthopedic surgeons. And so although right now, um, you know, if you're a generalist, you do some total joint arthroplasty, joint replacement with a robot, 70% of your practice might still be other procedures. And so um, it, until robotics is ubiquitous in a way where um, you're using AI-type technologies to make sure that all patients are getting the right procedures and are appropriately consented. And it, to just broadly say that it's going to lower malpractice rates is probably, you're probably a number of years away. So the liability will shift to the robotic manufacturer, that's what you're saying? <laughs> well, there should just be less liability in theory, right? I mean, we know, um, it's, we, we've done cadaver studies that we've published actually on robotics. It's very difficult to cut ligaments that you're not supposed to cut with a saw with, say, like the Mako robot. We've proven that and published it. So I, I think in theory, the goal should be to just lower the overall liability burden and thereby be able to actuarially lower the rates more so than, than shifting the, the liability. In theory, if there's a robot that performs improperly or malfunctions um, and causes a significant complication, then certainly there would potentially be liability from that perspective. But, but common ligamentous injuries that are inadvertent or injuries to the vessels in the back of the knee that you don't want to cut with a saw, um, we've shown that, that the robots, when functioning properly, should prevent that. You know, early on in uh, robotics, an earlier stage where we had um, different types of, of technologies that were helping us with alignment and things like that, one of the unintended consequences early was that the amount of time that the procedure took ended up causing 
a higher infection rate potentially and things like that. So we always have to look at, with all of these technologies, um, unintended consequences. And they all sound fantastic, but I can imagine um, somehow the exoskeleton, you know, crushing you on the, uh, the couch as you're watching television or something like that. So I think we always have to think about these things. Um, you had a comment, Mohan? If I may, I, th I think the, the, the irony of the conversation, I'm not a robotics person anymore. I'm retired from that field. Um, but, but I do know that the combination of ethics and robotics are a very, very interesting combination and, and have done work in that area. And the question to ask us is, when a robot does what you want it to do more accurately, based on experience, that's one thing. But when a robot behaves in superintelligence mode, where it is essentially learning from multiple physicians and then deciding to act based on a multiple data points, who owns the accountability for that decision is the bigger question. And we struggle with that all the time. It's not something easy to answer. I think the other thing that, um, you know, just on this same thing, who's to say one physician's uh, perfect knee is the same as another physician's. I mean, this is a topic that I know I've participated in the debate on many times in terms of, boy, that knee feels just right. You know, what does that mean until we're able to track outcomes and really know from a patient's perspective what that means and how, how many variants there are to what that perfect knee feels like? We, we really have a long way to go. Uh, Tad, you had a question. Uh, the other uh, follow-up on that one is the uh, patient's perception of that perfect knee isn't the same as the doctor's perception of the perfect exactly. knee. Exactly. My question, though, is about exoskeleton. I'm just curious. Um, there have been a lot of stops and starts in using exoskeleton or some kind of padding to protect people from fragility fractures. Mm -hmm. And I'm just uh, wondering, is there, is there advancement in this area with uh, new materials or exoskeleton to, in, in use in that area, protecting people from fracture? Uh, protecting people from fracture, yes, there's a couple of companies out there. It's a pretty tough problem. Um, and it's so I'm going to abstract out a little bit uh, for a second here, which is technology, and this is just a broad abstraction, but it's important for this com com comment, which is a technology should provide significantly enough meaningful value that people are willing to adjust their behavior to it. There is no technology that's perfect. Your phones are not perfect, but you're willing to adjust your behavior and squint at it to read the emails that are there because there's enough value that's being provided. So to date, I, don't, I haven't seen one in the fracture side that is adding enough value to let, allow people to adjust their behavior appropriately. So is there meaningful enough changes on the technology basis? Yes, but they have not been combined in a fashion that I have seen where a user is comfortable for fragility fractures, for example. Uh, for sitting and standing or back pain removal or improving your golf stroke, absolutely yes, there's been enough, enough things that people are willing to do it. But that's why we spent a lot of time in this company trying to make it so that all of those soft requirements were being met in the process. Great. Other questions in the audience? I'm so, oh, yes. Mark. <clears throat> so, uh, great session and very helpful. And one of the things that I want to ask about is in a field that, that is developing so rapidly, like you've all described, that the developments from last year are pale in comparison to this year, and we should expect it to be advancing fairly rapidly over the next few years. What's your thoughts on the decision makers in healthcare systems and how they should decide, not if this technology is gonna have an impact, whether it's the pharmaceutical robots or the surgical robots, but when they should pull the trigger, because the risk is always that if I buy this year's technology, I may not be getting the latest and greatest and I'll regret that I didn't wait another year, another year for the kinks to be worked out. So that's a great, let's just go straight down the line. We'll start at the other end. Joe, your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. You know, I think, um, I think pilots and collaboration are two things to keep in mind. So identifying a certain patient cohort that the risk profile 
deserves the innovation, that, 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 that you need to do something different. And so I think starting with pilots and finding uh, increasing capacities and infrastructure to do that, support for that, and then also collaborating with others outside of your own organization. We see that among our customers. Those who speak the most, who are most connected to uh, other leading health systems seem to manage the risk more effectively so they can move ahead and innovate. So just two thoughts. Yeah, it's an interesting time because there's sort of this crossing of the most cost pressure that we've seen in healthcare, which is only going to get worse in orthopedics with what's happening on the, on the outpatient side with total joints and reimbursement. Um, with these new technologies. And so I think it is going to become um, challenging for any company that truly can prove real value through the elimination of waste or through the ability to better control population health costs to be successful. On a positive, if you're the one company that can prove it and become adopted and transform, you probably have an opportunity to scale very rapidly today with the cost pressure. But for the more um, Me Too products that kind of sort of maybe are, are going to provide value, it's going to be it's going to be challenging. Um, I don't know that I answered your question. I think the question's a good one. Um, but I think the next 24 months in orthopedics, we will see, because of some of the regulatory uh, changes that have just happened, the next 24 months, from a hospital perspective, you will see the most um, aggressive attempt at cost containment that I've seen in my career. It's taken me a long time to get even a perspective on that question because it's a very powerful question, is when do you adopt changing technology or when do you adopt changing uh, frameworks? And technology will come and go. We know that. Uh, but, you know, we do know it's going to double every two years, right? The complexity is going to double every two years. We also know that we are data obese right now. We're completely data obese. We're insight starved. So... The data is going to triple and double every two years, and the ability to consume that data is going to be given through some form of automation and some form of insight-driven technology. AI seems to be one of those uh, available technologies that allow you to gain insight. We are hoping that more of that is available. When do you get in that game is a function of two variables in my mind. One, what is the culture in your institution? If your institution is filled with people who enjoy the present and are getting reimbursed from the present, their ability to see beyond the present will be completely negated because they can't see the ecosystem of the future. So giving them one tool will just make them reject it. So I've seen many companies who have this new technology come in from some startup and they just spit it out as much as possible, almost as if pathologically deciding that where they are is where they want to be. If your culture is not changed enough to have an open capability to absorb, experiment, and enjoy, as you had said, and to fail. And the word failure is, a, in Valley, failing is a good thing. Everywhere else in the country, failing is a firing offense. So the challenge is how do you get your inertia-driven institution to start to enjoy failure and to enjoy the fact that they're going to move forward? You have to decide your institution's character and then drive for a new character, which is the absorption of new ideas the trial of new ideas, the testing of them, and then the successes of them has to be managed by someone. Somebody has to be in charge of making that happen. And if it's the CEO, great. If it's somebody else, great. But it's got to be targeted. Without that, you are always going to be portfolio managers while other people are makers. And you will then buy makers all the time. And that is, I've seen that syndrome happen as well. That's a good response. Go ahead. Maybe a couple more questions. On the hardware side, Things are getting better. I mean, Tesla has really shown certain ways of doing this, which is where you think through the possible future sensor set and then make it a software optimized upgrade problem rather than a hardware upgrade problem. And we are doing that constantly in all of our systems, whether they're an apple picking robot or exoskeleton or something else. We're, we're always thinking about how do we pack it with our future needs so that we don't have to do a hardware uh, optimization. And that is a very fundamental change. We're making it a software problem rather than a hardware problem. Uh, that's something. And then on the, this broader thing that Mohan just said, I'll just elaborate. I think there's two things. One is that in our experience, we found the users are often too conciliatory to us when we come with a new problem at hand. I'd much rather you guys be much tougher. This doesn't meet our need. 
We're not going to use it. That's better to hear than, oh, you're a startup. You're a bunch of really clever guys. We really like you. We want to adopt this environment. Don't do that. Be tougher. Uh, <laughs> and the second comment I would make is, and this is to build on what was just said, is that I think the question you should ask yourself when you're adopting something is, is it a two-way door or a one-way door? If it's a two-way door, you can always come back. If it's a one-way door, like a patient health something, it may not be a two-way door, in which case you have to think 10 times harder before you adopt it. But I think large institutions often make that mistake. And as a senior person, if somebody in my group tells me it's a one-way door, I ask them to prove that, not to prove that it's a two-way door. I assume that. And that is a very fundamental mind shift that takes place. We all think, especially in medicine, primarily one-way door first and prove that it's a two-way door. I'd ask, suggest shifting that to the other way around, and that will really open up uh, the way to think about things. That's great. We've had a lot of, oh, one more, one more question. Yes, go ahead. Can I make a comment uh, here? I, I think one of the things that ought to be, one of the things that ought to be part of this conversation that Dr. Froings has started is also the innovation associated with business models. Uh, I, think, I think we're seeing a remarkable opportunity to rethink the business models uh, associated with technology, right? Uh, today, I can own a very expensive, complex piece of technology in my pocket as a subscription, and uh, Apple will change that piece of technology for me every 24 months, and I will stay right ahead and on, on track with it, and it becomes the manufacturer's responsibility to drive value for that. Uh, a few months ago, Volvo introduced a subscription model to own a car, and off to the races we go. So I think there's going to be a number of different dynamics that play into this, which makes adoption a different concept uh, when, when business models change along with it. Thank you. Great. Uh, one final comment. <laughs> As part of that, because there's a lot of startup technologies here today, and I just I would implore everybody to think about who their customer is. I would say over the last 10 years, everybody's assumed their customer is the hospital system, is the health system. And I would argue that where we are now is thinking about healthcare as a virtual care network that goes from the patient's home through the physician practices, all through specialty hospitals, outpatient surgery facilities, ICUs, et cetera. But the people that are going to make decisions about whether there's value in a product are the ones that hold the risk, which more and more is becoming the physician groups, the payers, and the employers. And to be honest, the hospital systems, especially if they don't own a health plan, are probably becoming less and less relevant to the delivery of health care as we move forward. I would agree with that. Uh, any other quick quick questions? We've got a great panel. Stefano? Yeah, no, say we actually have Plenty more time, 15 more minutes. Is oh, we do. Panel. Okay. But what I did want to say uh, to, to go on with what David just said here is this, this is a, the, when I talk about this topic, I said, look, this is not an investment to, for incremental improvements. We're talking about a fundamental restructuring of the industry that's unparalleled with what happened to automakers in the 1980s having to adopt robotics for automake, uh, making cars. I usually show two slides, one of a 1980s uh, Mercedes and then a 2014-16 uh, Tesla and the manufacturing plants. The thing is that those cars cost the same. In real dollars, if you adjust for it, it's the same car. You would never, ever buy a brand new 1980 uh, Cadillac when you had a Tesla available for the same amount of money. If you don't invest infrastructure that's going to be a sunken cost in your healthcare delivery model to then deliver the care that our patients will expect 20 years from now, you will not be in business 20 years from now. It's, it's, it's a much bigger than just, hey, this is a new gadget that gets me more patients than getting from the other guys down the street. It's, um, it's, a, it's a retooling of an industry. And I think I don't know if you agree with that. I'm pleased. No, I, and I, I think what what you're hearing is, uh, and actually going back to the to the prior speaker with Under Armour, I think you're hearing that you've got this entire ecosystem of technology now that potentially can be applied to patient health and and patient health throughout their lifetime. And so whether they're elderly and they're going to need an, an exoskeleton or or a total knee replacement, you know, all of these different sorts of technologies are going to be evolving and changing. And the question of, you know, when do you dive in is a great question. I think one of the real benefits of a conference like this is it, it starts to encourage people to start looking hard at these, at these technologies and these questions uh, in an effort to improve the care of our patients. So I would deplore uh, 
you, I have nothing but intense respect for the physician family. That intensity goes through my family as well. So um, my personal family. That, that intensity has to turn into something of a request, which is looking at technology as though it is a tool uh, makes both sides foolish. The technologists are not as domain-experienced, no matter how much you say it, as what you're going through and the experience you're trying to create your, for your patient. And you are not experienced in the life cycle of the patient because you're episodic. And the world is now looking at the experience cycle all over and everything we do is all about designing a human experience. And that human experience needs a human services platform of sorts. You have to decide, please, where you play in adding your own intelligence and your own compassion so that it doesn't get misdone. Because there are people designing that. And if you don't put your head in it, which I think this conference is a powerful place and platform for that, then it will be misdesigned. It will be something you will put a judgment on rather than owning the design of that so that it can be of use to the patients that you serve. Absolutely. I mean, you know, with all of these technologies that you've heard from this morning, uh, all of them are essentially augmenting various elements of human frailty, uh, whether it's uh, avoiding, you know, giving the wrong drug to the wrong patient at the wrong time or uh, getting out of the chair. Um, and so what we want to make sure that we also recognize is that there is a place for that human element in all of this. And that's a key part of the physician's role, uh, speaking as a physician, that uh, probably can never be replaced. Um, and we need to always embrace that. So uh, with that, I think we're going to, uh, to close the session this morning. And uh, thanks to the panelists. They did a great job. Thank you. And that, my friends, is the last episode from the January 2018 conference. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, we would love it if you could leave a review for us on iTunes or on whatever podcast app you use. You can also email me directly with any feedback. I always love to hear from you. You can reach me at dan at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Or if you want to use the shorter, cooler email address, you can drop me a line at dan at hpn.health. That's hpn as in healthpodcastnetwork.health. Stefano and I will be back with an update after the 2019 event, and we'll give you some news about what's coming up next. Stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, you can also follow the podcast that I produce called Digital Health Today. We've got some really outstanding guests who are pushing the boundaries on what we can achieve in healthcare. You can also check out the health podcast network that we're building that's curating and creating podcasts for professionals working to improve healthcare. It's called, you guessed it, the Health Podcast Network. You can find it on healthpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in and for being a part of the community. And until next time, keep on innovating. Keep on innovating.